with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, the first China International Supply Chain Expo in Beijing: How to stabilize it and build more trust in the global supply chain. And Germany's GDP fell by 0.1 percent in the third quarter compared with quarter two. Is Germany's economy headed for a recession? And now let's begin with our top story. The first China International Supply Chain Expo was held in Beijing this week. It aims to provide a platform for enterprises to expand trade and investment cooperation. It covers many areas, including smart vehicles, green agriculture, clean energy, and digital technology. Addressing the opening ceremony, Chinese Premier Li Qiang said the expo was part of China's efforts to stabilize the global supply chains and promote shared development. So, for more on this, join us on the line now, are Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, Yan Liang, professor of economics, Willamette University, Ina Tangen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also our reporter Li Yunqi, who covered the event in Beijing, join us as well. So, Yunqi, first of all, the expo covered five key areas to showcase the global. Supply chain industry. So, what impressed you most, and what have you been following? I think one thing that impressed myself personally and many other exhibitors and attendees to this event is that it is the first ever expo focused on the supply chain in the whole world. And one of the interviewee that I spoke with yesterday. Uh, Chris Perora, he is um,、uh, the CEO of American company that helps Chinese companies go overseas, and he said he he was surprised that why are we only having the first expo in supply chain right now, and I think one important reason for that is that we have been very used to、uh, globalization and and having the supply chain spread all over the world, having different countries. Different people in different region doing stuff, manufacturing stuff that with their expertise, and that helped、uh, trimming down the cost of manufacturing tremendously. And、uh, we, everyone, as the end consumer, we have been the beneficiaries to、uh, accessing products with better quality and lower cost. And so this has been a process for decades that we have been accustomed to. And、uh, but. It's only been the recent years that we are actually experiencing disruption on the global supply chain, and、uh, there are problems happening. And、uh, I believe that's why, at this moment, this year, that China is taking the opportunity to launch the first ever expo focused on in supply chain to help sustain. The globalization of this process.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Yan. So, why do you think is China holding an expo focus on supply chain, and why is it important to sustain a global supply chain? Yeah, I think the reasons are,、uh, I would say, twofold.、Uh, one is, I think,、um, as the panelists just talked about, there has been some changes、um, in in the global supply chain,、uh, partly due to the COVID, partly due to the Russian-Ukraine war, and then partly due to the U.S. sort of de-risking and Europeans de-risking kind of strategies that we start to see this kinds of、um, de-globalization trend,、uh, where some of the countries. 
are working on the so-called French shoring or near shoring, you know, shifting the supply chain um, to various locations, not based on market logic, but more based on political calculations. So I think it makes it all the more important um, for China and, uh, you know, global uh, producers and investors to really think about what would be the next step, you know, how to navigate through these geopolitical risks and how to uh, arrange or reshuffle their supply chain um, to make sense to themselves. So I think that is one um, one important reason is a more sort of a global change. And second, I think, you know, as China continue to open up and engage in the so-called high quality opening, um, and as China move up the global supply chain, I think this is a platform and this is a very useful opportunity for China to reflect on, you know, its own you know, position in the global supply chain, but also really to showcase to the world um, what China's can, what China's producers and suppliers can do um, in terms of, you know, forming that global supply chain and and produce value added um, for for the global economy. So I think those are the two reasons for you know this first ever um, you know supply chain expo by China. Mm. And so into now to the green supply chain that you have been following in the event. So how does the green supply chain matter to us? And what are the obstacles on the green supply chain? Or what are the companies doing to sustain this uh, supply chain? And I think for people in my generation, a lot of people from this uh, around my age, we tend to focus, we tend to pay attention to the future trends. And uh, this green trend is definitely a big part of that future. And uh, according to the estimate from International Energy Agency, the clean between the 30 years, so during the tw- during the 30 years between 2020 and 2050. The roles of the traditional fossil fuels and uh, clean energies, they will actually swap the position. So by the year 2020, the scale of traditional fossil fuels is 10 times that of the clean energies. But in 30 years, this role will be completely changed, actually reversed. So in 30 years, actually speaking from now, it's about 26 years. By 2050, the roles will swap and the clean energies will actually be 10 times that of the traditional fossil fuels. And that's, I think, to give everybody a sense of what the whole world is moving towards. And uh, and so green energy and one other statistics from the estimation from IEA is that this market of clean energies will create over 600 billion US dollars and over 140 million jobs as well. So this will also create a lot of economic opportunities, I mean, economic wise for every country. And I think this week is probably the best time to talk about green supply chain because we are having the COP28 event kicking off in Dubai this Thursday and uh, the future industries. The time that uh, the China Supply Chain Expo is taking place at a very good timing to coincide with COP28 so we can discuss how we should move toward a more green and sustainable future. Mm. So the green energy, actually also the Expo uh, featured a special section for smart vehicles. And we know that uh, this section, you know, displayed vital technologies and products of the, uh, you know, upstream, middle stream and downstream of the electric vehicle industry, you know, chain. So Aina, actually, is it something new that can, you know, reshape the auto uh, industrial supply chain, or is it still embedded in the existing one? I mean, the auto supply chain. 
Well, it's an interesting um, issue from this perspective. Uh, on one hand, uh, China dominates uh, all areas of the uh, supply chain, uh, but that has resulted in, uh, you know, kind of political moves by other countries saying uh, we, we don't want to be completely dependent. So, you know, I'm going to agree with my colleagues. You, you move from this area where uh, logistics was free and open, uh, investments were easy, uh, everything was easing rather than tightening, to a point now where geopolitical pressures and uh, competition is moving uh, countries away, but not all countries. You know, you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, 152 countries represented, they want a more inclusive, open, cooperative uh, environment for trade. Uh, but you have the developed countries, on the other hand, saying, look, we don't like um, open because it hasn't benefited us enough. And therefore, we're electing, you know, these uh, little yards, uh, toll fences, um, industrial policies, etc. So, you know, this is, there's a recognition uh, in this whole thing, you know, including EVs, that what is uh, happening is that there has to be new uh, ideas, um, and, and it'll be based on regional cooperations, et cetera, in terms of trade, uh, uh, logistics, and things like this, not the way it used to be, and that it has to be much more uh, finely tuned and managed, and there have to be places where you know, upstream, midstream, and downstream uh, entities can get together and try to figure out how to be more resilient to withstand the kind of political shocks that are out there. And uh, the EV industry is a perfect example of that. Mm. And so, Yunqi, actually talking about the industrial chain of the EV, so when we look at it, you know, China's EV development and its policy support, what has the government done right? And has it established a, you know, technological leadership position here? I believe policy support, as you mentioned, is probably a very important factor in helping this industry grow. And uh, on the product itself, on these electric vehicles, and there are some things that Chinese manufacturers and the companies, developers, they have done right to become a leader in the whole world. And I spoke with the general secretary of one branch of China's electric vehicle of automobile dealers association. And... Uh, According to our conversation, he, he believes one important reason from the technical perspective is that a lot of founders in China's NEVs or electric vehicles, the, these founders, they actually came, they, have, they had a lot of experiences from the IT industry. And when they start an EV company, they tend to design these electric vehicles with more um, perspectives, thoughts from the IT industry. They make it more intelligent and more user-friendly, like smart, the smart cabin smart driving system and that's something traditional car making companies they didn't expect because cars they started from germany decades ago and um, he gave an example of why Jap japanese cars took the lead become a leader in the whole world is because they found a solution during the oil crisis to have reduced the oil consumption of the cars. And just by one sing simple technical innovation, the Japanese cars were able to get ahead in front of German cars. And uh, he believes what's happening right now is that is the result of Chinese companies. They found the key innovation point 
as well. Yeah. So yeah, actually, when we talk about the global supply chain, also this week, the US President Joe Biden, he announced the launch of new White House Council focused on keeping the supply chain resilient. So what do you think is the main objective of this newly established one? And what strategies does it intend to implement to, you know, strengthen the supply chain's resilience within the United States? Right. So I do think that from an economic point of view, um, there is the merit to diversify the supply chain. So you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Um, that does make economic sense. But at the same time, I think what the Biden administration has been doing, though, is to really politicize the whole idea of diversifying supply chain. So the supply chain diversification is mostly motivated by political calculations and concerns. So this whole idea of French shoring, as the name suggests, is sort of, you know, we need to somehow cut China out of the supply chain or at least minimize China's extent establishment or um, its presence in the supply chain. Um, so I think that is, is problematic. Um, I do think that you wanted to create conditions and opportunities for um, businesses to diversify their supply chain and make their supply chain more resilient. But I think if you put everything you know, through the lens of pol politics and uh, geopolitics, then I think that would really undermine efficiency and undermine the resilience of the supply chain. So in terms of the strategy, um, there's not really much new. Um, you know, one thing that the Biden administration wants to do is, for example, to invoke the Defense Production Act to increase the production of essential medications within the United States. Um, they're also, um, you know, investing more in, for example, energy and food production. And the final piece of this of, of this strategy is to really work with their allies um, to build resilient supply chain, especially in critical minerals and in, for example, coaching services and so on and so forth. But again, I think, you know, it could put some countries in an uneasy position to sort of pick and choose if they wanted to do business with China or they wanted to do business with the U.S. And what it does is it would help to it will make the supply chain more complicated and more opaque. Um, and so I think that really defeat the whole rational um, I think, uh, sort of uh, reshuffling of the supply chain. So Dr. Zhou, so led by the U.S., some Western economies have recently started the de-risking policies and saying that uh, relying on China for certain factors in the economy and supply chain poses a threat to them. So how do you see this will influence the stability of the global supply chain? We know that uh, the supply chain is based on the capacity, especially from the industries of the manufacturing. And manufacturing cannot just start overnight, so they have to use some time to have some basis, like to choose uh, uh, the right resources, uh, the, the eligible the people, the human resources, and the related networks of the logistics. So it cannot happen overnight. If they want to de-risk and trying to shift some of their supply from China to other countries, I think that will uh, even put more risks to them, risk for, for uh, providing enough uh, products and also lowering the quality of the pro, uh, the supply. So it's a really uh, a kind of, um, I, I think, that procedure to put more risks on the supply chain. Well, if you are comparing with uh, from other side, I will say that the supply from China is still there. So we are still able to provide so many good quality and plenty of products to all around the world. So we can still try to establish the better and stronger connections and supply chain uh, with other countries, maybe include the Belt and Road countries. And that is a, a, a quite different ways. So if you are compare 
always these two scenarios. Maybe some com- some companies and even the countries may choose the second one. They're still trying to strengthen the relation with China, and I don't think that policy of the United States and their allies will be so uh, effective, and uh, it will also making the world in much more distorted mm-hmm. order in the supply chain.、Mm-hmm. And we are seeing that the U.S. companies actively participating in you know the global supply chain expo in Beijing this week, and the U.S. companies accounted for twenty-five、uh, percent of the total foreign participants. So, Dr. Zhou, so what does it tell us? Yeah, I think that when looking at the, the data and the percentage, I would see that United States, especially the companies, have already. Uh, involved too much in China, so they have established very strong connections with Chinese market. So they are trying to make it、uh, even more strengthened and trying to improve its positions in China's market. When we're talking about the supply chain, it is about not only about the real supply and demand. It it is also something to do with the expectation. If we can stabilize the expectation and make more, you know, the connection based on the credit, we'll be in a better position to supply with that. Cheaper and the better quality.、Mm. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, Yan Liang, professor of economics, Willamette University, Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also our reporter Li Yunqi, who covered the event in Beijing. And after a short break, we'll take a look at Germany's economy. Stay with us. Deep Dive, a podcast of CGTN Radio. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Germany is one of Europe's economic powerhouses, but now one of the world's largest economies is stagnating. The country's GDP shrank by 0.1 percent in the third quarter compared with quarter two, and in the first two quarters of this year, its economic output effectively stagnated, with the first quarter showing zero growth and the second quarter showing 0.1 percent growth. So, yeah, actually. Germany's GDP shrank by 0.1 percent in the third quarter. So, what are the main problems or challenges for Germany's economy now? Right. So, for Germany in the short term, I think、um, I think it is one foot in the recession or a technical recession.、Um, you know, the PMI reading in Germany right now is still in the negative territory, and the consumer demand has gone、uh, has weakened. So all these point to you know probably negative growth again in the fourth quarter and the two consecutive quarter would make a you know technical recession in Germany.、Um, in terms of the longer you know struggle of the German economy, I think one important problem is the aging problem. It's the aging not only of the population but also of their capital stock.、Um, so Germany right now,、um, it's interestingly. 
um, you know, they're having 5.8% of unemployment rate, uh, which is basically, you know, around 2.7 million people are out of job. But yet at the same time, they are facing, you know, acute labor shortages in many of their jobs. Um, according to some of the estimate, you know, they're they're um, lacking one in six uh, in, in their professions in terms of, you know, uh, shorting workers. So they're dealing with this very uh, interesting dilemma, right? That on the one hand, they're, they're having, you know, skill uh, labor shortages, but at the same time, they're having unemployed workers. Mm. So that is not going to be good for consumer sentiment, and that's not going to be good for their income and um, their growth. And on the other hand, their capital stock is aging. Um, Germany is pretty slow in terms of their innovation in, in digitizing their, their economy. Um, when you look at their infrastructure in terms of um, the internet, for example, at the end of 2020, only 20% of households outside of larger urban cities have this access to top quality internet connections. So that just shows that they really need to renovate, they need to innovate um, their, their economy to build their soft and hard infrastructure. And I think the heavy blow right now is their Supreme Court just ruled that the government's $60 billion of investments, uh, 16 billion euro investments in the climate change um, action budgets, it's illegal. So now um, the problem is that, you know, the government will not be able to continue to invest in the very much needed, um, you know, new energy and uh, green infrastructure and to continue to entice, you know, businesses to, to invest. So I think that is not going to be conducive uh, for Germany's short-term growth or their long-term growth, because I think the companies are facing, you know, still energy problems, um, and the lack of infrastructure upgrade, and that could lead to deindustrialization over the medium and long term. Mm. So, Dr. Joe, so there have been steep declines in Germany's industrial output for months. So, why is that? And do you see it as a more structural problems in the German economy? Yeah, I agree with Ian's opinions on, on that issues, but I, I will still end two more reasons that why the industries is are, are facing some problems. The first one is that the United States and, uh, you know, they are putting some kind of the policy, industrial policies, trying to re-industrialize its economy. Well, at the same time, they are using some subsidies to attract some of the car makers from Germany or other European countries to United States. Well, that is also one of uh, the problems that they are giving some stress on the development of the industries and manufacturing in Germany. And the second is that, you know, when we're talking about the European Union's opinions on the de-risking, they are also sending some message to the market that maybe we are not in a good relation with China or we are trying to to, uh, to block or some kind of uh, uh, have some impact on the expectation of the market. So the investors, they may feel that it is not so so good to just make a, a judgment on the short term the decisions. So they are thinking about what they want to do, what they can do in the future. That kind of message is also sending a lot of uncertainties for the markets to make a better adjustment and also invest it in the related areas. Mm -hmm. So, Aina, so what do you think does this mean for the European economy as a whole? Well, the OECD has uh, issued a report saying that they're very concerned uh, the $60 billion that, uh, euros, I'm sorry, that was going to be transferred from the COVID funding to uh, green energy uh, projects uh, also uh, 
uh, putting in electric subsidies is going to have a massive effect, uh, not only within Germany, but also uh, throughout Europe. Uh, Germany is a powerhouse. Uh, when their investment goes down, it has a, a cascading effect on the rest of Europe. So they're extremely concerned. There is not an uh, economy that can step up and fill this hole. So, you know, it's just not Germany. It's all of Europe. And, th and this is a tale which you can see uh, going on globally. The developed countries are having a real issue with their economies. Yeah, yes, everybody is suffering, but these are economies that are not used to suffering to this extent without having uh, some sort of solution, as uh, both my colleagues have mentioned. Mm. And Dr. Joe, so the ECB president, uh, Christian Lagarde, said Europe is now at a critical juncture with deglobalization, demographics and decarbonization looming. So what's the answer to the European economy, do you think? I think that uh, if we're talking about that, I would say that uh, if you are trying to have a more sustainable development and trying to be better integrated uh, with the global economy, you should try to stick to the, the you know, the international rules that we have uh, agreed and we have promised in the organization like in WTO. And we still also trying to hug for a bigger market, like we are looking at some of the very important market in the Belt and Road regions and in so many developing countries and economies. So the cooperation between China and the EU would be very important. And we can see there are so many new achievements that we have, uh, you know, with the unilateral promise for uh, get, for letting the, the passport holders of Germany to come to China uh, without visa apply application. So that is a kind of uh, information we can hear from China. But I think that uh, you should have some response and maybe we can do better by better integration and not only in the traditional ways, but also trying to discuss about the innovation in the new areas in the green economy or other areas. Mm, so, yeah, what do you think is the answer? Well, I agree with Dr. Joe. I do think that international cooperation is important. I do think that the you know European countries needs to really prioritize um, you know their economy and their their economic sort of future over some of the geopolitical calculations or concerns. That's number one. And number two, I do think that they really need to strengthen uh, government investments. So I agree with Ina. I think that sixty billion uh, euros of investment now is ruled as illegal is a huge blow to the to the German economy and therefore I think to the entire region. And it's not just Germany, but many of the European countries are faced with this whole, you know, fiscal discipline and fiscal, you know, sort of austerity kind of uh, imposition. And I think that is very um, backward looking, that it's very bad for their growth. Uh, I know they are very sort of spooked by the hyperinflation kind of um, history. But still, I think it is time for the government to really get their act together, invest into green energy, green infrastructure, green technologies. I think that is really what they need to do um, in order to really build their economy over the long term. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.